these cases. So when you sit on a law committee, um, again, just to give you a quick background, 25 rabbis appointed by three different groups, Rabbinical Assembly, Jewish Theological Seminary, and the United Synagogue. Zegram now may have one, I don't remember if they have a, a, an appointee as well. There are lay people as well from the Cantor's Assembly from the United Synagogue who are allowed to sit there, but they don't vote. They're part of the discussion. The, discuss the, the vote is eventually by the rabbis, and you can only vote if you're present. You can't vote online. This is what procedures were was when I was involved. <clears throat> the, there is a list of topics that are usually distributed, and you can pick a topic that you're interested in. These topics may come from individuals, mostly rabbis, many times um, institutional stuff, United Synagogue, RA, whatever the case may be. They may become things that the committee feels we should look at. Nobody's really asked the question. But new medical inventions, new kashrut issues, those kind of things that, that come up that somebody says, gee, I'd like to write about that. There really isn't a etc. And when it's handed around, your, your, the responsibility is to take a subject, to do the important work in terms of the research, to present an initial paper to the group. You're then open for, like any academic discourse, for corrections, criticisms, and everything else, to take it back, to eventually rewrite whatever you need to do, and if you're lucky enough to bring it to the next part for a vote. Some of them are more technical, um, and therefore take a longer period of time. The ones that I did were not as, as technical in some cases, and a couple of them were actually were accepted on the first vote uh, without even having to go back. Um, I think there were four to vote that I wrote that I can recall. Um, they're online, they're available now, um, they've been published in books, etc. The last one that I wrote, and I actually do this for our high school students, uh, talks about removing a, it's called removing a muzuzah. What happens when you leave your house, your apartment, etc. Do you have to leave the mezuzot there? Can you take them with? What are some of the ramifications of, of those kind of issues? And so it's something that I do with the students for two reasons. One, because it is something that they're going to they're deal with. They're going to move from dorm to dorm and apartment to this, that, and the other thing. And in the early years of their lives, they'll do a lot of moving. That's number one. And number two, I'd like to believe that there's a rationale of the way my mind worked and the way the, the, the paper is presented so you get a halakhic background on, on kind of where you look and what you do etc. The Chuvah itself took me a while to write because you had to do the research did the research here, I did it online, I did it at Spurtis Institute I did it at JTS, I did it at the Schechter Institute uh, in Jerusalem I um, was in touch with a couple of colleagues to re read this before I even presented it to give me their point of view etc. So it's um, it, You'll see some of its Hebrew, it's all translated. The toughest part was trans putting in the Hebrew and putting in the footnotes and all that kind of stuff, which is like any academic paper in that realm. Okay, so that's the background. Right away, there's a question. <laughs> you haven't been here, so make up for it, Sam. I have many months to make up. What else? Well, um, is, there, is there a process within the Orthodox community? The Orthodox community does not have a law committee, they have post scheme, they have individuals who make decisions. Okay, so the reform movement also has a responsive committee, um, but in, in the in the Orthodox movement, you're you, you're reliant on a, a major postsec to make decisions and to write the tshuva. So, so when you went through your process, 
you know, one of the things I hear from my kids and I think other There's, people. There should be enough, I think so. But not the yeah. I'm listening. I'd be curious. People talk about the intellectual consistency of the conservative movement and the intellectual rigor. And, and I know, I'm sure what you prepared is intellectually robust. We'll see. We'll see. Right. But my question is, how much, when, you, when people write these two lists, to Sam's point, how much are you thinking about, well, the post say, you know, Moshe Feinstein thought about this. It'll be in here. Well, Plankin thought about this. Some of them, the answer is, you'll see, you'll see me quote it. In this in this chuva, some orthodox post scheme, uh, a couple of conservative post schemes, even a reform person, etc. So the answer is you have to take it all in. It doesn't mean you necessarily agree with their conclusions. And the orthodox world doesn't accept your halakha. The oh, I don't know that answer. The answer is they may, they may. First of all, because you haven't read the chuva, you don't know exactly where it come out. Number one. I'm talking more. Yeah, and, and the answer is it depends. There are times when we come down with a chuva which says exactly as an orthodox posek would say. There are some times we come down saying we disagree with that orthodox posek because you got to, with the intellectual rigor, for all these kind of reasons. Okay, so what you'll see, again, when you have to look at the stuff, you got to go biblical, rabbinic, um, medieval, modern, sort of look through the different sources. As always, it's impossible to get all the sources just because, you know, this it's a... Today is a plethora of stuff. Something you you know you pick two those kind of sources, and everybody does. That's why the Orthodox conservative reform. Mm -hmm. You know, there is there objectivity in this stuff. There's never objectivity in anything, as far as I'm concerned. I've said that before. You still pick your sources, mm -hmm. okay? But you have to be able to go back and be able to show that there's a internal logic because that's very important. To Rabbi, before this, and not as far back as Maimonides. Uh, did Rabbi send, I used to call them Shilas. Uh, right, right. Uh, I, I remember the principal of our school was telling children, 98 rabbis from all over the country wrote to each other. Now, I'm talking about 17th, 18th, 19th century. Is that, was that a means of communication? The Shailot and Shuvot are a major concept within Jewish tradition, okay? And that's part of the oral law. So you have Shailot and Shuvot throughout medieval history. Uh, a, one of, a wonderful book was written by Lewis Jacobs, I think it's called The Tree of Light, if I remember correctly, uh, and where he takes the response to literature and basically shows through it some of the history. You can learn history because people, Jews didn't write history in the, in the I think that's the title, I'll get it for you for sure next time, it's at home. Um, Jews didn't write history. We wrote theology, we wrote halacha, etc. The concept of writing history is relatively new, as we understand history. The person who wrote about that was Chaim Yosef Yerushalmi in a book called Zachor. Z-A-C-H-O-R. It's about Yeh Big. Very important book. He was a professor at Columbia for many years. Uh, and he wrote about the fact that Jews didn't write history. It's only in the modern age that we wrote history. When, when Salo Baron wrote his social and religious history of the Jewish people, that was one of the major, first major th stories before him was the first person to really the threats, and that was the 19th century. Okay, um, it still was history of Jews, but it's so outdated now. You know, it didn't let it to uh, the first part. That, so we didn't write history. So how do you tell history? As we've seen, I gave you. We looked at uh, Salome and all those things, and you know, and Shimon ben Shetach through the prism of the Talmud 
and the sources. You look at you can look at medieval times through the questions they ask. Um, I just wrote an article for a book that'll come out eventually um, on the sermon. They asked me to write an article on the sermon. Well, what you can tell again is in this in, in language of sermons is what bothered the rabbi and what was involved in the in the um, in the community's concerns. Um, David Sa uh, not, um, Saperstein, Mark Saperstein has written very important books about sermons. Used to be in in, in um, Hebrew Union College. Now he's in in England. Um, and what you can tell is that through the sermons you can tell what was important to the rabbis and to the community, etc. Same thing in Shelot and Shubud. So they may have transferred these questions or answered, they knew of one another but the Spartan and the Ashkenazim didn't necessarily know one another and those in Poland and those in Eretz because again Pony Express you know till it was gotten somebody got it and said, they had to write it out by hand all the rest of the stuff and they had to know the sources they simply couldn't look online and go to a concordance so brilliance was definitely there but Shelot and Shubat were very important and we have Shelot and Shubat throughout the ages uh, of rabbis from Maimonides wrote a few um, definitely in the, in, in the Middle Ages and con rabbis continue to write but today they're published and that's the difference Ron, first. I was just thinking about Josephus though, isn't he a noted Jewish historian? yeah but he, he, well, he's not a Jew, the question is whether he's a Roman historian or a Jewish historian okay he wrote for the Roman Court, so it's difficult to call him necessarily a Jewish historian. There, and history to him was was a little bit different than the rigors of history today. But he mm -hmm. was there a reason the Jews didn't write history? Was history wasn't a major part of life in in the Middle Ages. The people, you know, you, you can go back to to history, you know, to Thucydides and all those kind of people, but they're relatively little. The discipline of history, as we now know it today was not in ancient times. People wrote theological texts. People wrote stories. They didn't write history per se. Um, there were some, some, but, right, but, no, but those became history. We, we read it as history. But again, you've seen the Talmud is not history. Okay, the codes are not history. We really, what Yerushalmi tries to prove is that history really came as a modern invention in Jewish life when we began. Binyamin Mitudela told us stories as he went from his, on his travels and those kind of things. You have a few, but not history with the rigor that we would have today as a okay? Even, even you think again, when you think of language, okay? And SEO I think will appreciate this. When you think of language, Israel, Hebrew has its own terms for language for all for many many disciplines. What's the Hebrew term for history in Hebrew? Historia. There is no. Okay. Now that says something. There's not an ancient term. Okay. Bible is mikra. I mean, there are Talmud. I mean, all of those things. Okay. Machshevet Yehudi is Jewish thought. There is no word for history. Yeah, but you don't read it when you. Toldot Amim is as close as you can get. Okay. What's the Jacob's first name? Lewis. Lewis Jacobs. Lewis Jacobs. I think it's a Tree of Life, but I have the book at home. I'll check next week for sure. But so, what you'll learn from this, somebody may read this, you know, hundred years from now. Not really, not. But what they'll find, I believe, is a little bit of the, as you'll see the sociology that I had to do in addition to the halakhic material. 
because sociology plays a, this question might not have come up as you'll see as I try to examine the sources I have to examine the realia as such the realities of ancient times and the realities of today and they are different and because they are different I eventually come to certain conclusions okay so this as you can see was eventually accepted uh, 17 1 and 2 person who was against it. Rabbi Reisner actually wrote a paper saying that he didn't like some of my um, arguments, etc., but his view was not accepted, mine was. So, this was the question. Must a mezuzah be removed from or left on the doorpost when one is moving from one residence to another? Okay, you all know the question, and actually, as I say, it's an important one in that sense. Must it be left only when Jews are moving into the home? What about art mezuzot, beautiful or expensive or very decadent mezuzot that have a great deal of meaning to the present owner or resident? May they be moved even if a Jewish person is moving into the house. Okay? You answering the question or are you... Right. Right. These are common questions. These are not, this in my case is not an esoteric kind of thing. These are questions that I do get from people, etc. You know, we've moved as well. So the question therefore becomes what's the, what is the responsibility of the resident as the resident moves out of his her place and presumably as again you will understand that most not everybody does but mezuzot occur on all the doors of the home not just the outside door right? except for closets, bathrooms those kind of things and things that needs a door frame and there's actually a, a you know, de definition of a door frame. But you, what you under, have to understand, and I have my archaeologists here, is that what this is now is not what was then. No, not at all. And that's what's going to make a huge difference for our understanding. I had to go back and research what was then, because that's what the Talmud was talking about. That's what the Bible may have been talking about. So, in Barcelona, in what was the Jewish border, where he spent most of Checking the doorpost. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you'll see. Right? right. You'll, you'll see it. I'll talk about that in that sense. But again, you know yourself, mezuzah is the one of the things that we take very seriously. And don't tell me you don't do this. I know almost everybody does. If you're in an apartment building and you walk down the hall to some, you look at the doorposts. Okay, yeah, we all do that. It's more difficult in Highland Park where people are. But you're, if you're going up to someone's house and you're dropping off somebody or picking up, you look at the doorpost to see if they have a mezuzah there. We we all have done this. You know, some some apartments won't let you put up a mezuzah on the, out, there, on the outside. There was a court case because of that. Okay, I know her block. Oh, was it local? She was local. On Sheridan Road. She used to be, send the kids to keep a shelter. I know the family. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying we do that right. But there was a court case, and she won. Yeah, she won. Yeah. All right, we're ready to go. Sam, you want to start us? First paragraph. Please. Well, I read the two that that Shayla just read. Oh, okay. <coughs>
The major source concerning this issue is found in Bava Metzia 101b to 102a. The Mishnah informs us that if one rents a house to his neighbor, the landlord must provide the door, door bolt, lock, and everything which requires a skilled worker. Okay, so the door. I mean, come on. You don't get a door? Even Israel apartments get a door. (laughs) A doorpost? You get a doorpost. But what does that mean in ancient times? Okay, my archaeologists. What does that mean, a doorpost in ancient times? It was stone. It was stone. And you needed what we would consider to be a hinge to be able to open and shut a door. And those were not small things. To move a rock as such. Corroborate. Yeah, that's why Josephus is not real history either. Most of it, most of it at least. Yeah, is, right. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Numbers. Right. Okay. So this is the question. This is what the Talmud brings, or the Mishnah as such. Okay. Um, person who rents a house the landlord, the person who's there who owns it, must give them the door the door boat, the lock and everything which requires a skilled worker to put the doors on was not again simply, I mean I can't put a door on so I need a skilled worker too, but it's not the same kind of thing, you're dealing with stone and you're dealing with being able to knock it open to put in this, this door a hinge of some sort Okay, meaning by the Talmudic times they knew what a mezuzah was. I've said before, the Bible really doesn't tell us what a mezuzah is. Should write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. What the heck does that mean? What, where, how? We don't know. We don't know. The oral law clearly understood. It's in Menachot, it's in Menachot as we'll see. Um, and the ultimate responsibility here is the door was the landlord's, but what about the mezuzah? The person who owns it or the person who's in it? And part of that has to be because you had to carve it out in the rock. It took work. It wasn't just going to the gift shop, buying a piece of parchment, putting it in, and putting it up. You have to go back to the reality of the situation. It responds by stating that Rav Meshashea said that the obligation of the mezuzah lies upon the inhabitant. The Talmud then responds that the real question is who shall provide the place uh-huh. for the mezuzah, since very often a cavity was made in the sto- stone doorpost 
which required a skilled worker. Okay, so who has responsibility to carve out, to chisel out, if you will, that airbus, that cavity, in that response? And it then continues. The Talmudic section then continues by stating, Our rabbis taught, if one rents a house to his neighbor, the tenant must provide a mezuzah. But when he leaves the house, he must not take the mezuzah with him, excepting if he leaves, if it be leased for the non-Jew, in which case he must remove it when he leaves. Okay, that's the major text. Okay, must. Right now it says must, okay? means he must. Okay, so, one rents a house to his neighbor. We're dealing about renting. I'll come back to this. The tenant, the person who's living there, provides the mezuzah. When he leaves, he can't take it with him if a Jew is moving in. If a non-Jew moves in, doesn't tell me why, doesn't tell me wherefore, then he, he, he it says, must, and he leaves. We'll come to that. That's one of the questions. No, no, good question, because that's going to be a question I have to deal with. Okay. The Talmud then substantiates this legal statement by quoting the story. A very unbelievable story that really bothered me and obviously will bother me throughout the paper. And it once happened that a man took the mezuzah away with him and he buried his wife and two children. Something's up here. You read that source in the Talmud and you said, what? Something's up here. Keep going. Rev Sheshit clarifies the passage by stating that the story deals with the former case of an Israelite who took the mezuzah off the doorpost where he had rented it from another Jew. Okay, meaning he should have left it. He took the mezuzah and there was pun and there was subsequent what looked like punishment. He buried his wife and his two children. That's what the text says. Clearly Rashi and Tosavo, everybody's bothered by the story. But we have to, the story is there. You can't simply say, oh, what kind of dumb story is that? You can't simply discount it. I don't believe, difficult texts are not to be discounted, they have to be dealt with. You don't have to be apologetic, I believe, but you've got to deal with them in the reality of the situation. You can reinterpret them. You can reinterpret them. But you can't discount them and say, oh, that's a mistake, shouldn't be that. Let's just cross it out. That you can't do. Go to the next one, okay. Clearly, okay. Did you read the next little one too? The Tosafot suggests that a house without a mezuzah will allow the mazikin, the evil spirits, to enter before the next resident moves in. The printed ripa on our text suggests that since this individual was not concerned about the welfare of those who would move in after him, it was measure for measure, and his family was on. Okay, so a couple of things here. So what I did was I looked around the page, the Tosafot are Rashi's grandchildren, approximately, French and, and German commentators, who were bothered by this and said, now, what then becomes the rationale for the, the uh, wife and children being in? Because the evil spirits came in. Meaning, what's the purpose of a mezuzah? To ward off evil spirits, according to the Tosafot. I'll come back to this, okay? To ward off evil spirits. The reason I then say the printed ritba 
because I sent I sent a copy of this originally when I had done my work um, to Rabbi Joel Roth, and he wrote back to me and said there were different manuscripts of the Ritva, who's a medieval commentator, all right, on the Talmud and and in the codes, and said we have the printed Ritva and we have the sort of the one which another manuscript. What you have and your reading is from the print, from the text itself, not the manuscript. So that's why I did it this way, the printed ritpa. Our text suggests that he received midah keneged midah. He took off the mezuzah and what presumably was going to happen, the mazikin were going to come in and hurt the next people who were coming in. He received measure for measure that since he, quote unquote, wanted to harm or was allowed was allowing to harm the next group his family was harmed instead. Okay? That's at least the way they understood it. Okay, Nesya? No. No? Okay? Right. Well, this from this source. Okay. Oh, okay. No, 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 the, from the per- previous paragraph. From this source. From this source, it seems rather straightforward. It is incumbent upon the person who, who resides in the home, the renter, to put up a mezuzah. When he leaves the premises, he must leave it upon the doorpost if, if the home belongs to a Jew. Should it belong to a non-Jew, then he should take the mezuzah with him. The story seems to suggest that if one doesn't follow this law, I'm just summarizing here. That's what we've learned. But then from there I got to go to the codes. I went to the Rambam and then I went to the Shulchan Aruch. Yeah. Wait, wait. Wait, wait. It's semantics. Yep. If the house belongs to a Jew, that means the Balabite, not the renter. This is the rent. Well, if a renter, meaning the renter is clearly a Jew. Okay, the renter is clearly a Jew. So this is not about ownership, this is about renting. Right now this is about renting. I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that yet. Right now it's about renting. Um, if a person rents a house to another, it is the responsibility of the renter to bring the mezuzah and affix it, even if he, if he has to pay for the, for the, uh, to be affixed. This is because the affix, affixing of a mezuzah is the responsibility of the person who dwell in the house <laughs> and not the house itself. Uh, when he moved out, he must not take it with him. If the house belongs to a non-Jew, he takes it with him. The Rambam simply codifies what we've learned from the Talmud. Okay, Ron? If an individual rents a home from his friend, he must affix the mezuzah. And when he leaves, he must not take it with him. Should he rent the home from a non-Jew or lease it to a non-Jew, he takes it with him when he leaves. Okay, again? Yeah. Okay, now, now I'm going to go back to Fran's question because that bothered me too. Why don't you read next? While the sources refer to the rental of houses, they presumably didn't sell things. It probably wrote that that wasn't in the rec thing to rent, I guess. I don't know. Since the mezuzah is the responsibility of the person who dwells in the house, it would make no difference if the person dwelling in the house was an owner or a renter. Should he move out of the premises, the halakha would stipulate that he must leave the mezuzah if a Jewish owner or renter followed him. 
and take it with him should he be followed by in the place by a non-Jew. Okay. Now that seems to be simple. I should close the book here and simply say that's it. However, there are other issues involved. Well, the answer here seems to be rather simple and straightforward. There are always extenuating circumstances. These are mentioned in Sheila. Zuzot may have sentimental value to us. They may be quite expensive. Does the halakha recognize these issues as legitimate grounds to change the law? Keep going. Keep reading next. A mezuzah is understood by the rabbis. Now I go back to searching what the mezuzah really is, right? The two passages of the Torah, which are written on kosher piece of parchment, the Talmud seems to suggest these passages were placed in a cavity next to the doorpost, which could even be placed in a hanging tube of a reed. Okay, so the cavity we've talked about already, and why would they put it in, in, in something in a tube of a reed? To protect it. To protect it. Okay, you need some protection. That's why we have a cover. As you well know, some people think, oh, great mezuzah, but there's nothing in it. You know, it's the mezuzah is the parchment. It's got nothing to do with the, a beautiful cover. Okay, Darren? In the Babylonian Talmud, uh, chapter 3, it was understood that the dweller in the home was the res- has the responsibility of placing mezuzah on the entrance of the home and to the door of every living room of a house. It is to be affixed to the right-hand doorpost of the room in the top third of the doorpost facing in. Now, that's determined on the basis of how you walk. How you walk into the room. Correct. (laughs) By the time of the Shulchan Aruch, it was suggested that it was wise to cover the parchment for its safekeeping in order to protect it from getting moisture. Okay, so far so good with everybody? In our days, with the advent of Judaica artists, the covering of the mezuzah has become just as important as the parchment to the people of our communities, if not more so. Newly married couples, for example, may receive beautiful mezuzot as gifts to enhance the Judaic sanctity of the home as well as its its aesthetic aesthetic beauty. In fact, I have officiated at some weddings where the shards of glass smashed by the chassan at the conclusion of the ceremony are gathered up and then made into a covering for the appropriate parchment and presented to the couple to hang on their doorposts as a memento of their wedding. And you've seen some of you, I'm sure, have seen this. You may have given it as a gift, etc. It's now not simply, oh, they just get a cover in a tube of a reed or put into a cavity. It's now something that has great sentimental value for you. So what happens if you want to take that one with you? So far we've said, if a Jew moves in, you have to leave it. Right? Look, but yeah. we're really, it seems like they're dealing with the actual mezuzah in Baba Metziah and in the Shulchan Aruch. They're, they're not dealing with the case. So why wouldn't we just assume, since they haven't addressed the case, we can just take the case with us? The issue is the mezuzah itself. Let's see. That's it. Got it. Okay? That's, those are part of my thought patterns. Okay? Thus, the issues related to leaving the mezuzah behind for the next owner or renter. Should that person be Jewish or today more complex? Who would want to leave behind these mezuzot, which may not only have sentimental value, but also may be worth considering? You can buy, if you're buying a gift for somebody, you're going to buy a beautiful cover again. You know, and that person now knows that that came from uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so or your cousin. They really want to keep it. They're going to, you know, most people move at least once or twice in their lives, but want to put it up while they're there. What do they do? There have been various solutions offered to this dilemma. Okay, so now we're going to start dealing with the solutions for taking a mezuzah with you. Okay. The Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, 
who, who wrote the, the Ashkenazic commentary that will on the uh, Code of Jewish Law and the Shulchan Aruch, which, which is about 16th, 16th century. So. Recognize that the result may be quite expensive, and leaving them for the next renter or owner may be quite. This possible. is already back then. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> he suggests that if the person moving out of the house is concerned about the monetary loss then it is the responsibility of the person moving in to pay for the mezuzah. Okay, so, Jane, this, this actually will affect people's sales of homes. If it becomes expensive and you want to leave it and the person says, no, I want to take it, can this be part of the contract of sale? This can be a solution to the issue of the expense involved in leaving behind the mezuzah, but it does not answer the question of their sentimental value. The Pite Teshuvah... Which, co- which is a commentary or a... Uh, a lot of compendium on the Shulchan Aruch as well. Which is also him. A little bit later. Okay. On the same Simon in the Shulchan Aruch offers another alternative. He quotes the Birke Yosef, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azuli, stating that if the Jew leaving the residence wants to take the mezuzah with him, and the Jew entering the residence agrees and immediately fi- affixes his mezuzah, this is permitted, as it alleviates the problem outlined by the Tosafot and the printed Ritva. What was the problem with the, of the Tosafot and the printed Ritva? took it down and didn't replace it. And, because, and what was the problem? Therefore, evil, spirit. evil spirits coming in. So, if you make a deal with the person who you're now, either the renter and you're t- leaving, a, leaving his place, or you've sold it, and you make the concept of, I'm going to take my down, you put another one up, immediately, we've alleviated the problem of the ritpa and the tosafot, and all's well with the world. This solution is also offered by a more contemporary source in their book, The Complete Mezuzah Guide. These already is, is modern times of the, you know, it was written in the 70s, 60s, 70s, I forget exactly, 80s, I don't remember exactly what it was written. He's the head of the OU, Rabbi Elephant. All right, I mean, so it's, 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 it's okay, so you asked me, these are modern sources. Thank you. Uh, the Complete Mezuzah Guide, Rabbi Moshe Elephant and Rabbi Eliezer Weinbaum. Quote Rabbi T. Goldstein, who states that if there is no intervening time between the taking down of the mezuzot and the putting up of new ones, then it is permissible to take them. As you can see, this comes to 1987. You can see the footnotes. Okay, and just read the next line as well. Rabbi uh, Jacob Yahu Blau, in his book, Sefer Hovat Adar. Hovat Adar, the obligations of a person who lives there. Also, <coughs> okay, so what do I have so far? I have so far that if you want to take, you have to leave the mezuzah based on so far what the Talmud says and the code say, but if you want to switch them, you can switch them. If there's a cost involved, deal with the cost. You can work that out. The renter, the renter takes that. But is this only for the front door mezuzah? Wait, don't, hold, don't mm-hmm. answer that question yet. I'm not answering that question yet. Both of these books did Da'at Kedashim on paragraph 291, Shulchan Aruch, Yored, who states that very expensive mezuzot may be exchanged for less costly ones before moving out of the house. Since the doorposts still carry mezuzot, the concern of the Talmud does not apply, and therefore this is... Permitted. Okay, meaning if, you, if that's a sentimental value with you, go buy a cheaper ca- case. That person doesn't want it when they move in, so they'll change it, you know. But that's important. You still lived up to the responsibility that the Talmud says to you. Okay. Rabbi okay, so there you go. There's a chief Sephardic rabbi for many years of his of his. It is permissible to place a kosher mezuzah on the door 
in place of a more artistic one since there is no worry at all concerning the Mazikeen. <laughs> he actually suggests that this be done a few days before the move so that when the move does take place, the mezuzah is already on the door and does not need to be replaced. Okay, everybody with me so far? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> wow. Good. Mishneh Halachot, which you can see at the bottom, in 1977, a modern book. Okay. So again, you know, Jane, I don't think there's probably any part of your contracts, but if there is an issue of mezuzot, it's part of the contracts. You make it as part of your agreements, whatever the case may be. Okay? And you can see again, 1991. So great that the new resident cannot afford to purchase them. He suggests that if this is the case, then the cloth can be left behind and the new resident can purchase his own case. But he also suggests that it would be acceptable for the new resident to purchase his own complete mezuzot and affix them to the doorposts of his new. In other words, modern people understood this stuff and said there are ways around it. We still are concerned about what? The mezikin. That you don't walk out and leave nothing there because of the story of Rav Sheshit. That's a troubling story and nobody wants to put that on somebody else or to be punished by themselves. I cannot so far negate the story. The story is there. I have to deal with it. All right. Bernie, I'm going or do you want to go? Yeah, I, I just had a, this particular case come up when I rented my home just eight months ago. So I asked the new, the new renters uh, if they would like to leave the mezuzah, if I should leave the mezuzah up or not. And he said, well, I'm not Jewish, but my wife is Jewish. Mm. <laughs> I don't think the codes dealt with that one in the Middle Ages. <laughs> they will deal, I will deal with non-Jews, though. Yeah. So, uh, so I left it. He said, you can leave it. Okay. Um, we'll come to that kind of question, though. I promise you. And the printing is a little different because the print is different as Sephardic and Ashkenazic Torahs. It's a great Torah. Right, yeah. Well, it depends. The Sephardim don't accept the Ashkenazim, the Ashkenazim don't accept the Sephardim, but that's beside the point. No, the text is the same, but the print, the, the way they write a chet, for instance, is different as Sephardic Torah, whether it's two Zions or written differently. Okay? Sephardim and, and, and Ashkenazim write the, some of the letters a little differently. What if you know the house is going to be What is what? What, do you know, what if you know the house is going to be demolished, but they're going to live there for Let, Let's get to the end of this question. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lawyer in you. Yeah. 
That last line is what concerned me. If, in fact, we should. What bothered me all along was this mazikin issue. Okay, I'm a modern person. As I said, I think I said to you, everybody's superstitious about something. Anybody who claims that they're not is not being uh, fair and, and um, truthful. But mazikin, evil spirits, I'm just not comfortable with that. So I kept looking for something which would relate to that issue. And now I begin to discuss it. Yes, sir? Be it as it may, whether you agree or disagree, why would you expose Goyim to Mazikim? We're gonna, we'll come to the Goyim yet, too. Yeah, no, no, I get it. I get it. Right. Well, some of them probably would, but, you know. <laughs> here, is my, here is, if you will, my chidush. Here's your person again, great scholar. You can see this, this was an archaeologist historian of the HUC annual in 1960. Apotropaic. Apotropaic. What is that? Apotropaic? What is that? No. Yes. Apotropaic basically is to ward off things. In other words, that it was evil spirits were always there. Everybody believed in evil spirits, you know, whether we like it or not. You know, poo poo poo, Kanina Hara, that's all evil spirits, guys. You know, let's face it. Okay, never mind knocking on wood and all that kind of stuff, too. And the red. Huh? And the red stuff. The red, so what this basically says is. The mezuzah was not originally, but by two muted times, it was part of the of the of the culture, and Jews accepted it as well, and basically said this is to ward off those evil spirits. Um, in, in, it must be something very inst instinctual in, in people, because I, I'm reading now about uh, primitive tribes. Mm -hmm. and a lot of, it. I mean, of course, of course. Today we don't like to admit it, but again, poo poo poo, kanehara, red string, it's all part of the same thing. And you know the old story is Kudenhoit, right? Kudenhoit. <laughs> right. All right. I'll. Yeah. Huge. Huge in those days, right? And there we know about one of my professors, I remember. Um, Albush wrote a book, uh, was a Bible professor at the seminary, wrote a book on, Bib on Babylonian incantations. Yes. Okay? Right. Absolutely. Shomer del Tot Yisrael. That's what it stands for. Mm -hmm. Okay? It was all part of, you know. And Rav Chista's daughters did this. Okay. Okay. All right, Franny, go on, please. He also points out. He also points out that during the Middle Ages, with their mystic tendencies, this conception came to be held with growing intensity. Maimonides, however... This was the key source for me. Okay. 
sees the mezuzah, Mishnah Torah, the Kot Mezuzah, has an opportunity to recognize that every time he enters and leaves his home, he will encounter the name of God, be reminded of his love, and turn the humanities of this world to choose a right. Maimonides, the rationalist, says, yeah, great for evil spirits, but there's something else with the mezuzah. When you walk in, you see it, you know you're walking into a place of Torah, the God's name, Shaddai, is there, all of the above. Okay, you know on the back of the mezuzah, it has Shaddai, Shomer Daltot Israel, God who protects the houses of Israel, the doors of Israel, and Kozo something else, I forget the exact word, anybody ever seen it? It's Hashem Elokeinu with a letter off, Kaf for Yud, Zion for Vav, it's a, everything else. It's a magical in its, and of itself. Take a look at the back of Mezuzot, and you'll see Kozo, and it's something else. I forget exactly the whole the thing. About the, parchment. the parchment. The parchment. Yes. So even on itself, there is a magical incantation, read in a certain kind of way. What is it? In the back of the Mezuzot, it says, yeah. first of all, Shaddai. Yeah. One of the games, God stands for Shomer. And then the words Kozo, which is Yud K Vav K, with a letter off. And I forget, be, whatever the, the letter is, Elokeinu. Be happy to go to work. <laughs> Thank you, Reverend. Sure. No, we will meet next week. Um, okay, so go on. Go ahead. Perhaps it is worthwhile, therefore, to examine the reasons behind the law. Now I'm getting to kind of do my Kiddush. The Talmud in Baba Messiah seems to suggest that the Mezuzah should be seen as warding off evil spirits I have a legitimate source here, one of the great scholars who doesn't bring Mazikin, but he brings another issue up. Can I use that appropriately and base some of my thinking not on evil spirits, instead on Raimonides? Sandy? Uh, Robert, yeah. Can I ask you a question? Just to back up to Raimonides for a moment. Before he comes to this, what I think is a very appropriate answer, does he talk about Mazikin at all? Not that I recall. Not that I recall. That's the key. In fact, J. D. Eisenstein and Otsar Dinim Umin Hagin. These are now newer books, but I have now modern sources to back this up. Suggest that a rationale behind the Mezuzah is to identify the fact that in that house lives a Jewish person. It is a sign of Jewish identity. This is also mentioned by Israel Mayor Kagan, the Chafetz Chaim, in his book Sefer HaMisvot HaKatsar, Mitzvot Blah. I think most of our community would agree with this. In other words, as I said, you walk down, you don't think of evil spirits. You instead think of, that's a Jewish home. You put it out there. Okay? Etc. Okay, Nina? That being the case, I would suggest that the main issue when it comes to moving out of a house or an apartment is the front door of the domicile as individuals both outside the dwelling and entering therein recognize the Jewishness of the inhabitants, 
and the divine presence within the dwelling. Therefore, we can respond to the concerns of the Talmud, the Rambam, Eisenstein, and the Kofetz Chaim by making sure that the front door of the dwelling is never without a mezuzah if the next dweller is a Jew, and that can be accomplished by any of the methods mentioned above. When that person moves in, then all the other mezuzot can be affixed on the remaining door. All right, everybody stand my move here. I've taken Maimonides, supported by others, and said if it's, if it's a Jewish identity thing, it's really outside. You have to keep a mezuzah on. You still want to protect, because I can't get rid of this mezikin, or whatever the case may be. We have ways of, of, of doing that. You can exchange. You can make it part of the contract. You can put a, a cheaper this, a cheaper that. But that's got to be up. The other ones, it's in the house. It's not the same form of Jewish identity. Right now. How about the Jewish identity? About 20 years ago, it was very popular for people to wear a mezuzah. Right. Especially that's an amulet. The equivalent of an amulet. That's an amulet. Yep. It's equivalent of an amulet. Are we going to get to this, or does that include, what about the mezuzot that are inside, and the inside doors? Well, I've just said, you don't have to do that. You could. The, you have to put them up, but it's now the person who's moving in, and now you don't have to leave them for the other person. You can take them. Is there a derivation to the word mezuzah? Mezuzot really means doorpost. I don't know if that, 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 that. I can't tell you. No? These cases apply. These cases? These cases apply when the current resident knows that the next resident will be a Jew. What happens if his home is handed over to a realtor or a rental agent and he is not sure who will follow him in the house? Rabbi Moshe Tzvi Landau, Sefer Mezuzot Melachim, 11.22 suggests that the current resident take the mezuzah with him since they may not be accorded the proper respect. Avraham Amsalom states that if one lives in a city where the majority are non-Jews, he should take the mezuzah with him since the next person to occupy the place will most likely be a non-Jew and the mezuzah may therefore be accorded. Not be accorded. Not be accorded. This is known as ruba. It's a concept of according. If you find a piece of meat on the ground or someplace, and you don't know if it's kosher or not, the rule is if most of the the area has kosher butchers, it's kosher. It's, you can presume it's kosher. If most of the area has non-kosher butchers, you can presume it's non-kosher. It's known as ruba. So I've said this in the realm, basically in that realm. If most of the people who live around that area are Jewish and are going to rent there, buy there, you can presume to leave it. If most of the area is not. You don't have to. Friend? Rabbi Chaim? No, should a non-Jew. Oh, excuse me. Should a non-Jew request that the mezuzot be left on the doorposts, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, in his comment on Yorei Dea, believes that this would be permissible since there might be discord if the Jew takes they see it up there. They like the. They like it. It's you know. It's a patropaic. It's all those kind of things. You you don't want to mess with the non-Jews in Poland where he was. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Exactly what he's saying. The Birke Yosef agrees with this position as well. When it is known that the non-Jew will not abuse it, 
it is permissible to leave the mezuzah for him. Then I show Rabbi Lechaim Levi Adonin has written some wonderful books to be a Jew, a Jew, a prayer, wonderful things, but he's living in a different world, and look what he says. Rabbi Chaim Halevi Donin, however, suggests that a non-Jew may not treat the mezuzah as a sacred object and may possibly remove it or desecrate it. Interesting, this is somebody who lived in the States, made Aliyah Israel, and sees the world a little differently. Therefore, it is his opinion that the mezuzah should definitely be removed if a non-Jew is moving into the premises. He does state that if the non-Jew was only interested in the case as a decorative piece, <laughs> then it may be left on as long as the sacred part of Because what do they care about the, the inside? It's the outside that's well, the key. they don't know what it is or what right. the... Okay, so what, what you then have to do is sum, well, I'm going to summarize and then give what's known as the psak, the halakhic thing, based on all of that we've done so far. So, summary. Yes, you? A lot of source based on um, the Baba Metzia uh, uh, makes it quite clear that if one Jew follow another in, in a dwelling, the mezuzah should be left for the new occupant. However, because of the expense and the sentimental value, various opinions have been offered, uh, uh, allowing the person who leaves we already had how you can keep your own mezuzah, put up another one, exchange it for something less expensive, etc., etc. Right? Since most of, yeah. the, of the members of our community see the mezuzah as, as a positive sign of Jewish identity and not as an instrument of toward the evil spirit, the major concern is the front door of, of the dwelling. Mezuzah, the mezuzah should be left on, on the front door for the new Jewish occupant, but arrangement can be made for the person to, uh, leaving, leaving the residence to take the mezuzah with him following the opinion of the authority. authority. If a non-Jew is the next occupant or is a, a expect, expected to be, the mezuzah should be removed so that's the summary. Now I come to the conclusion or what's on a sock. Yes, sir. I was just going to say, my experience, I've purchased two, uh, two previous houses, and both times the Medusa were on the door post of the house. Did they leave them? Yes. All of them? Yeah, one was uh, Ken, uh, uh, Ken and uh, Bar, uh, oh, Ken and Bobby. But all right, uh, but all of them or just? Oh, just the door. Just the door. Okay, so this is what I think has become the... Some of them may not have had mezuzah. I mean, today many people don't put mezuzah on all their doorposts. Anyway, they just put it on the front door. But here you get. Okay, so here's the here's my conclusion. This is the, what's known as the the halak or the halakhic opinion. Okay, Ron. Conclusion. It is in common common knowledge that the Should a non-Jew move into the premises, or if it is unsure who will move in, 
and the home is in a neighborhood where most of the neighbor, neighbors are non-Jewish, you should take the mezuzah with you. If the non-Jewish is to remain, arrangements can be made provided properly respect to the children. So, to answer your question, if you know it's going to be demolished, you take the mezuzah with you because proper respect won't be shown. So, Hanukkah Habayi has nothing to do with this. You can do a Hanukkah Habayi later. You're supposed to have a mezuzah. If you buy someplace new, you're supposed to have it up within 30 days. But this would say, get it up as soon as you can. Before you move in. Okay, I have to tell you a funny story. We moved so many times from between Waukegan and Hyland Park. And the first move we made, it was in like the beginning of December. And we had all of the, everything was just moved in our townhouse. Nothing was put away. And Abby, who was five years old, kept saying, are we going to put up the mezuzah? Are we going to put up the mezuzah? The first day I said, yes, we're going to put up the mezuzah. She said, when are we going to put up the mezuzah? When are we going to put up the mezuzah? Finally, I looked at her and I said, what are you worried about? And she said, I have an idea. She said, I think if we can wait and not put up the mezuzah, I think Santa Claus knows you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't see that in the <laughs> So she just proved my point of being Jewish identity. Santa Claus reads the mezuzah. Although if you come down the chimney, I don't know how you see it. It's a side question that is not I have in the door, inside doors decorated mezuzah that have no parchment in it. Yeah, those are yours. Without parchment, doesn't matter. Okay. Again, you do, we know you have mezuzot in schools and in shuls and offices. You don't need them. It's where you live. They're good fundraising aspects. That's it. This is all of. Okay. Yeah, but what happens if you don't? I mean, what? Is there punishment? Yeah, by whom? The Obviously. <laughs> so, I, I, yes, sir, last question. It's all over. I heard to the mezuzahs represent the blood on the door for Pesach. Right, part of it. Is that also, is that something? But it, it became, not, you, put it, you put the blood on the mezuzah, but that's simply the doorpost. It doesn't represent. Okay. It doesn't represent. It doesn't, okay. Because it, in, the, in the same way that identified the house as a Correct. House. But, right. But it, repre- it, it was the doorpost in that point, and that was it. It, it was never used again. Did they have mezuzahs in those they didn't have mezuzahs in those days. We don't know what they were in those days. So, what, what I, this is what I'll suggest I do next week. I have three other um, shuvot. One of them is a little bit, you know, so-so size. The other two are rather short. I'll, we'll study those next week, and you'll get my compendium of stuff, and we'll see where we go. Okay? We'll meet next week. Thank you.